You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we are so very grateful to you that you have revealed yourself in the pages of Scripture and that we can come to know you as you are. And we pray that through understanding you and, and your work of providence and sovereignty, that we would gladly bow our hearts and our knees before you, that we would not try and mold and shape you into our image of what you ought to be, but to allow the passage of Scripture to speak for itself so that we might come to see you as you are and know you as you are and as you've revealed yourself in the pages of Scripture. Help us, we pray, to understand this very difficult passage and that we would give glory and honor to you in obedience to it as we reflect upon these things, the greatness of your grace, the greatness of your providence, and the greatness of your sovereignty over all things. We thank you that you are our God, and we thank you that you would send your spirit here to be our teacher and our guide. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have been given a lot of examples of unbelief in the pages of John's Gospel, And uh, one thing that we have seen over and over again is that unbelief is never a neutral or apathetic position. Unbelief is always a hostile, uh, a hostility to God and an active suppression of the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, No man is neutral. No man is apathetic. You are either a believer or an unbeliever. And if you are a believer, then you don't suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You embrace the truth. If you are an unbeliever, you are actively involved in suppressing and holding down what you know to be true in your unbelief. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on John's Gospel, says this, We err greatly if we suppose that seeing wonderful things will ever convert souls. Thousands live and die in this delusion. They fancy that if they saw some miraculous sight or witnessed some supernatural exercise of divine grace, that they would lay aside their doubts and at once become decided Christians. It is a total mistake. Nothing short of a new heart and a new nature implanted in us by the Holy Ghost will ever make us real disciples of Christ. Without this, a miracle might raise within us a little temporary excitement, but the novelty once gone, we should find ourselves just as cold and unbelieving as the Jews. End quote. And we have seen the, the, the accuracy of those words played out again and again in the Gospel of John. Now we come to the end of the 12th chapter and Here we have this passage that has providentially been put by John and by the Holy Spirit right at the end of Jesus' public ministry. So he is done with his teaching. He has taught the crowds. He He has taught them in the temple, outside of the temple. He has performed his final miracle before the Jews and the religious leaders. And now John, we have seen, shows us what the response of the Jews was. Over and over again, it was unbelief. A miracle followed by unbelief. A discourse followed by unbelief. A gracious invitation to salvation followed by unbelief. A warning against the consequences of unbelief followed by unbelief. Then another miracle followed by unbelief. Another sign followed by unbelief. That's the pattern all the way through John's Gospel. And so now we have John's inspired commentary, his explanation, as it were, of the the, the reasons behind the unbelief of the Jews. And we saw two things working together in this passage. The the responsibility of man, and the sovereignty of God. Now, the unbelief of the Jews was not due to any lack of ability on Jesus' part to communicate clearly. One thing we have to remember is that Jesus was the most persuasive, the most powerful, the most potent, and the most perfect preacher 
who ever lived. He never said anything wrong. He never lacked any ability to communicate to the hearts of men. He was the most powerful and persuasive and perfect preacher who ever lived. And how did his crowds respond to him? With unbelief. Even with all of his perfect uh, presentation, all of, of with his with his eloquence, with his power, with his persuasiveness, none of that gained him access to the hearts of his audience. None of it gained access to the hearts of the unbelievers. Because apart from the work of the Spirit of God in calling to the shepherd those who are his sheep, none of them could or would believe. I read a quote from Spurgeon this last week. He said, unless the Spirit of God attends the preaching and teaching of the Word, you might as well be shouting into the ears of a corpse. Because you're going to get the same response. Deafness and unbelief. So last week we saw there are two things working together. The responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. These two things work in concert with each other. So even in spite of all the signs, in spite of all the proof, they still, verse 37 of chapter 12 says, they still remained in unbelief. Though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in Him. That is their response and their responsibility. That is the reaction of the crowds. That's the human responsibility element of this. Now today we turn our attention to the sovereignty of God. And I want to remind you of something that I told you last week. And it is particularly uh, pertinent to our text here today. We as students of Scripture always need to be careful to make sure that we allow the text to speak for itself. So we are going to read some difficult verses, not only in John chapter 12, but also back in Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read some difficult verses, but we always need to remember that it is Scripture that stands over us. And John is clear. I believe the intention of the Holy Spirit is clear. And even though these verses might be difficult for us to understand, we always have to bow the knee to Scripture. And we always need to be willing to bow the knee to Scripture and say, I will allow God to be God. We recognize that He is sovereign and that we are not. And as offensive as some of these things might be to us, we let the text speak and we allow the text to stand. Not that we can war against it. But you know what I mean? We don't try and find some way of understanding this or explaining it in a way that makes us all feel nice and warm and fuzzy. We can't do that. We can't try and do that. When we do that, we are being disobedient to God and we are dishonoring Scripture. It is far better for us to just simply say the truth as it is and allow that to be our case and allow Scripture to speak for itself. So that's what we're going to do. We're getting in verse 38. We're going to look at the sovereignty of God. So with your Bibles before me, let us read the text together, beginning in verse 38. This, now hold on right there. That's a good place to stop. Let's stop right there for just a second. What is the this referring to? What is the this referring to? Up in verse 37, but he, though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. What does the this refer to? Something in this passage fulfills the word of Isaiah the prophet. What is it that fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah? It is their unbelief. Now remember that their unbelief was their choice. It was the result of their love for darkness. They resisted the truth. They responded in unbelief. They saw the signs. Their choice was to turn away from the light and toward the darkness and to embrace spiritual darkness. That was completely their doing and their responsibility. But that, in fact, is the very thing that fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. And the prophecy that John is going to give us here in just a moment, the prophecy of their rejection. It is their unbelief that was itself a fulfillment of God's prophecy. Now that doesn't mean that God coerced their unbelief to fulfill the prophecy. It means that the prophecy itself was fulfilled by their free act of unbelief. And I mean free, not in a libertarian sense, 
but free in the sense that that is exactly what they chose. That is exactly what they were responsible for. They freely chose, if you want to use that phrase, I'm not comfortable with it because you know my theology. I'm not comfortable with the phrase, but we would say they freely chose their unbelief and that act of theirs was itself the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Now Isaiah quotes, or sorry, John quotes two different passages from Isaiah. And before we look at these two different passages, uh, let me make you aware of something that some people will raise as an objection to the New Testament. Sometimes people will say, doesn't the fact that the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah, doesn't that in fact prove that Jesus was not the Messiah? Because, don't you think that the Jews, of all people, understanding the prophets, having the prophets in the Revelation, and being eyewitnesses to Jesus and His disciples and their claims, don't you think that they were in a good position to evaluate the claims of Jesus and compare them to the Scriptures? So being in that position of knowing the truth and seeing what they saw, doesn't the fact that they rejected the Messiah prove, in fact, that Jesus was not the Messiah? Because if He were the Messiah, they, as the Jews, would have been able to recognize Him for who He was and embrace Him. I would submit to you that the rejection of Jesus by the Jews does not prove that the Bible is false. The rejection of Jesus by the Jews proves that the Bible is true. Why? Because 700 years before the Jews rejected Jesus, Isaiah predicted that when the Messiah came, he would be rejected. The rejection of Jesus by the Jews proves that this book is inspired and that Jesus was the Christ. If the nation had embraced him at his first coming, that would have been evidence that he was not in fact the light because... They loved darkness. And had they embraced Him, it would have proven that He was not, in fact, the Messiah that He claimed to be. So, let's look at these two passages. There are two, two passages here that John quotes from the book of Isaiah. In verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, verse 39, for this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, and now he quotes another passage from Isaiah in verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Uh, he quotes two different passages. One from Isaiah 53. Lord who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. That's Isaiah 53 verse 1. The second quotation is from Isaiah chapter 6. Now those two quotations in two different parts of Isaiah, there's something significant there as well. If you know anything about the book of Isaiah and skeptics and agnostics and critics of the Bible, they will tell you that um, they believe that because Isaiah is in two different sections and written and, and written in two different styles, people who disbelieve Scripture will say, therefore, Isaiah was written not by one person, but by two different people. Because if you, you can divide Isaiah up really easily. Chapters 1 through 39 are sort of aimed or geared, aimed at the nations, the judgments and the woes and the sin, and it sounds very much like Amos. But the last half of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, they're more geared toward describing the work of the Messiah at both His first coming and His second coming. And so there's a lot of predictions about the kingdom and the blessings and all of that. Two very different styles, two very different sections in Isaiah. And for that reason, some skeptics say, well, it was written by two people and not one. Therefore, you shouldn't trust that because the New Testament says that, uh, that Isaiah wrote both passages. Well, here we have John's inspired testimony that both the first half and the last half of Isaiah were written by the same person. He quotes one from the early passages, one from the later passages, and he attributes them both to the prophet Isaiah. That means that you can take all of the 
uh, higher critics and all of the skeptics and the liberals from the late 1800s all the way through the present who say that Isaiah wasn't written by Isaiah and you can throw it all out the door because John, who comes 2,000 years earlier than any modern day skeptic, was 2,000 years closer to Isaiah than we are and I would take the testimony of John the Apostle over any critic or skeptic of the New Testament any day. So that's just to kind of keep that in your mind. Both of these passages, one late, one early, are both attributed by John under inspiration to the one prophet, Isaiah. So you know what happens when we read in the New Testament, in our study of John, when we come across, across a quotation from the Old Testament, what do we have to do? We have to, yeah, Some of you are already starting to flip. We're going to roll your eyes and flip. Thanks, Thomas. You have to flip back, and we want to find out why did that New Testament author quote that Old Testament passage? What did that Old Testament passage mean in its context? And why then did this author see a significant thing to quote from that prophet? Why did he choose the passage that he did? So go back to the book of Isaiah and the 53rd chapter, Isaiah 53. Now keep your finger in John 12 because we will be coming back there again. This is going to be like a sword drill. You're going to have to look at three different passages today. I don't do this often, but I do it enough to annoy some of you. Isaiah 53, verse 1, is the first verse that John quotes. Isaiah 53, I'll give you a second to get there. All right, now this is a familiar passage. And not one that's going to take a whole lot of explanation because you are familiar, obviously, with the contents of Isaiah 53. And though there's a chapter break right there between those verses at Isaiah 53, keep in mind that the chapter break itself is not inspired because the section actually begins back in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Now that begins what we call the suffering servant song. There is a series of, in Isaiah, the last few chapters, there are a series of these songs about the perfect servant of God. And this is the song that describes the suffering of the perfect servant of God. And this perfect servant is one who is marred more than any man, he was marred more than the sons of man. is almost recognizable. And then before Isaiah really gets into describing what this servant would do and his death, Isaiah begins with this, uh, this sort of statement of stun, stunned unbelief. Verse 53, chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? Now, that's a statement. It's, it's supposed, it's intended to communicate sort of an exasperation. Who's believed our message? Who? After all that Isaiah has prophesied up to this point, all that he has said, and what he is about to say, in the midst of this, keep in mind, Isaiah is saying, who has believed this? This seems unbelievable. And even in his own day, the Jews did not respond to Isaiah with belief. And so there is this question that is intended to communicate the reality of, of the fact that Isaiah was greeted not with widespread acceptance, but with widespread unbelief. Who has believed this? It's a rhetorical question. And what is the answer? Nobody. Nobody has believed this. Though kings speak of him, though his name is widely proclaimed and widely disseminated, who really truly believes our message? Is it a lot of people? Is the road to eternal life broad or narrow? It is narrow. Who has truly believed this? Not many. As many people who have heard about the name of Jesus and heard about what he has done are familiar with the cross, how many truly have embraced it and believed it and received that message? Not many. And then Isaiah goes on to describe all that this suffering servant would do. Look at verse 
3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Now you see there that Isaiah is describing in the, the most specific of ways that you could possibly expect in any Old Testament passage, the sacrificial substitutionary propitiatory vicarious atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those words simply to say he stood in our place and Isaiah is there describing that he was punished for our sins so that we might receive his righteousness. That is imputed sin and imputed righteousness that Isaiah is describing 700 years before it took place. But what does he say at the beginning of that before he talks about any of that? Who's believed this? A lot of people or a few people? Very few. And look at the second question that he asks at the end of verse 1 of 53. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's another question. Uh, what is the arm of the Lord? Most people think that that is a reference to Christ. Uh, the arm being a figure of speech for power or might or strength. And that seems to be the way that John uses it in John chapter 12. The arm of the Lord there being a reference to the miracles that Jesus did. Did the Jews not see the power of God in the person of Christ? They did. Every creative miracle, every healing of the sick, every raise, a person raised from the dead, they saw demonstrated the might, the power, the strength the almightiness of God, His omnipotence they saw in Jesus Christ. And yet, even though they had seen all of that, who has really believed the report about Him? No. That expresses the unbelief, not only of the Jews in Isaiah's day, the Jews and how they responded to Isaiah's prophecies, but it also expresses the unbelief or describes the unbelief of the Jews in Jesus' own day. Who has believed this? You realize that the, the rejection of the Jews did not take God by surprise. Nothing takes God by surprise. You realize that the rejection of Jesus by the Jews did not take Jesus by surprise. He was not shocked by that. He knew that going into this, He would preach, He would teach, He would heal their sick, He would raise their dead, He would be compassionate, He would graciously invite them to salvation, He would teach them all of that, and He knew that He would still be rejected. At no point was Jesus ever living under the delusion that they would respond to Him and embrace Him. He always promised them what would happen if they did, but He knew, as Isaiah had predicted, this was a published fact that the Jews would reject him and they would turn away from him and they would walk away from him and they would end up crucifying him. One of the things that we learn here in Isaiah 53 is that this passage, since John quotes it referring to Jesus, that is an indication to us that this passage does in fact describe Jesus. And I say that because Jews today do not view Isaiah 53 as a passage that describes their Messiah. If you've ever witnessed to a Jew, you know that. They don't look at Isaiah 53 and say, this describes our Messiah dying on a cross, providing a substitutionary atonement for our sin, so that by repentance and faith, we might have His righteousness. No Jew says that. Instead, most Jews, in fact, the orthodox interpretation of this passage by most Jews, is that Isaiah 53 doesn't describe their Messiah, but it describes the nation of Israel. And so they look at the suffering that is described in this passage, and they say, that is the description of the persecution and the, the Holocaust, and the rejection, and being kicked out of the land, and all that the Jews have suffered as a result of anti-Semitism on every continent, in every age, all through the length of the existence of their nation. So they see the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 as being the nation, but 
you read this passage and you realize no nation could fulfill this passage. This, these things cannot be describing a nation. These things can only be describing a person. And this is also the most widely rejected passage of the Old Testament by modern day Jews. You realize that most Jews are not even aware that Isaiah 53 exists. Uh, every once in a while I read this, uh, I get Israel My Glory, the magazine, and the back of it is a little article by a guy named Zvi. Z-V-I. And he's a Jewish Christian who lives in Jerusalem, and he goes out and he witnesses to the Jews on the streets in Jerusalem around the temple constantly, and he writes these little testimonies about encounters that he has had. And he will start reading to them from Isaiah 50, uh, 53, and Jewish rabbis, even Orthodox Jewish rabbis who know their Old Testament will say, what are you reading to us from? Who is that describing? And most of them don't even know that this chapter exists. This is the most widely rejected, widely neglected, widely disbelieved passage of the entire Old Testament. Does it surprise you? It shouldn't. What does the first verse of it say? Who has believed this? This is not going to be believed widely. This is not going to be believed widely to the very people to whom it was written. Because they reject it. And do you realize that their rejection of Jesus, the fulfillment of this prophecy, when they rejected Him, let me put it this way, the rejection that is described in verse 1 ends up fulfilling the rest of the passage. Do you recognize that? Verse, chapter 53, verse 1 describes the Jews not believing in Jesus. John says they fulfilled that when they rejected Him. Even though they had seen His power and seen His works, they turned away from Him and they rejected Him. And that rejection of Him, that unbelief, what did it lead to? They crucified the Messiah, which does what? Fulfills the rest of Isaiah 53. It is actually their unbelief spoken of in verse 1 that makes the rest of this passage a description of Jesus Christ because everything else in this passage flows out of that. Now that's the first verse that John quotes in chapter 12. Now look back to the second passage that he quotes from chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6. And since you're flipping backwards, continue all the way to the beginning of the book of Isaiah. I want to give you a couple of highlights to sort of put chapter 6 in its theological context. And no, I'm not going to go all the way through every verse of chapter of chapters 1 through 5, but I do want you to see a couple of things so that when we get to the tough part about blinding eyes and hardening hearts, that we understand the theological context in which those verses are given. So chapter 1 speaks of this vision that was given to Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now listen to the oracle beginning in verse 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It's a desolation, as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom We would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. 
Now, if I refer to you as a ruler of Sodom, do you get the picture there? That's not difficult to understand, is it? What is described here does not let up for five chapters. Isaiah goes on and on in describing their iniquity. This is not a nation of innocent and ignorant people. This is a nation who had received blessing after blessing. They had the covenants. They had the prophets. They had the light. And they turned away from it. And they rejected it. They turned their back on God. They rebelled against Him. They were sons who acted corruptly. And Isaiah goes on to describe in the next five chapters iniquity and sin that you walk away and you just you feel dirty. You feel like you need to take a shower. Because you can imagine the environment in which Isaiah lived. He lived among a people who, who did nothing but lie. He lived among a people whose religion was so shallow and so banal and so empty and so traditional that the heart wasn't even involved in it. It was all an outward and external show. He lived among a people whose rulers were wicked and corrupt. They were money-hungry, money-grubbing. Their entertainment was perverse. Their culture was perverse. Their religion was perverse. Everything that they did was perverse. Everything was characterized by darkness. People wanted money. You could buy a judge. You could buy a bribe. You could get bribes and receive bribes and give in exchange for that. Uh, power. People exchanged money for power and power for money and influence. There was oppression. Judgment and justice were un, un, almost unseen in the land. It was an absolute wicked environment. And I'm describing Isaiah's day, just in case you think I might be talking about our own day. Every form of immorality that you can imagine was not only allowed, it was promoted and it was celebrated in Isaiah's day. It is to that culture that Isaiah It is in that culture that Isaiah lived, and it is in that environment that Isaiah has the vision, which begins in chapter 6, verse 1. Now turn to chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now Isaiah had never seen anything like that before. And he saw the Lord, the King, and he saw the angels and what they shout out. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And the place in which Isaiah stood, verse 4, The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. And what is Isaiah's response to that? Verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah came undone. That's what it means when he says, Woe is me, I am undone. His knees shook. He literally fell apart at the seams. He melted like wax, as it were. He was completely undone by the sight of such a holy God. And suddenly Isaiah realized how holy God is and not only how sinful he was, but how sinful everyone around him was as well. He doesn't just say, look, at uh, now that I have seen the holiness of God, I can appreciate the sinfulness of all these other people. No, Isaiah said, now that I've seen the holiness of God, I first see my own sin, that I am a man of unclean lips. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks And Isaiah recognized that his lips were an indication of the condition of his heart. He himself realized how sinful of a man he was. And not only that he was a sinful man, but that everybody around him was just as sinful as God had been describing for five chapters. All of that iniquity and all of that sin, and and we get 
we, we get like frogs in the pot. We get boiled in it, as it were. We swim in it. We, we're surrounded by it const, uh, constantly. And sometimes we don't, are not even aware of how much that affects our own hearts and our own minds. And Isaiah was himself swimming in those waters. Not that he was participating in the iniquity, but that he was so surrounded by it that it was like, like, like Sodom and Gomorrah with Lot. His righteous soul is tormented by it day and night. You ever feel like that? You look around you at the iniquity of what's going on, and you feel like your righteous soul is just tormented by what you see going around you. That was what Isaiah felt like. And then he saw the Lord of hosts, high and lifted up, and the King of glory, and he absolutely came undone. He realized his sinfulness. And then look in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Notice the Lord saying us. Speaking of whom? This is a reference to the Trinity in the Old Testament. You have here one person of the Trinity speaking for and on behalf of and to the other members of the Trinity. Who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. He said, now this is the part that's quoted in John chapter 12, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Now that's the passage that John quotes. And that's not the only, John is not the only place in the New Testament where this passage is quoted or alluded to. It's actually, you will find it in the Gospels as well. And I'll give you three quick references. It's quoted in Matthew chapter 13. It's quoted in Mark chapter 4. And it's quoted in Luke chapter 8. And in all three of those references, it's in the same or similar context where Jesus is teaching in parables. And then the disciples or someone in the crowd would ask him, why do you speak to the people in parables? And then Jesus goes on to describe the two purposes of him speaking in parables. One, it was to reveal truth to some to whom it had been given. And second, it was to conceal truth from those who had rejected the truth. And that's why Jesus says, to some of you, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But those who are outside, it has not been granted. And so then Jesus quotes this passage saying that the speaking in parables served two purposes, to open the eyes of some and to blind the eyes of the others who had rejected the truth. Then the verse is also quoted in the book of Acts at the very end when Paul is in confinement in the city of Rome and the Jews come to him and he begins discoursing and discussing the things concerning the kingdom of God and concerning Jesus. And then the Jews begin to reject it. Some believe, but most turned away. And then Paul said, well, listen, one final word of warning. The Holy Spirit says... And then he quotes this passage as a warning to the Jews saying, if you turn away from this, if you reject this truth, you are proving yourself to be men just like those in Isaiah's day who rejected this as well. And in rejecting this, you are blinding your eyes and you are hardening your hearts to the truth of the gospel. Then it is quoted in Romans chapter 11 when Paul describing there the rejection of the nation of Israel and the hardening that has taken place in the nation of Israel. And though Israel has been hardened, they have not been cast off. They have not been rejected. They have been hardened for a period of time. So Isaiah chapter 6 is actually quoted in six different places in your New Testament, and it happens to be the first six books of the New Testament, uh, all four of the Gospels, counting John chapter 12, the book of Acts, and the book of Romans. Now that's how the word, that's how the passage is used in the New Testament, but I want you to notice, now you've got it open to Isaiah 6, I want you to notice that how John quotes the passage is not exactly as Isaiah recorded the passage, and there's a reason for this, and I'll explain why. So I want your eyes to read over Isaiah chapter 6, And I will read to you John chapter 12. Listen to John's quotation of that passage. He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. Now there's a difference there, right? What is the primary difference? Isaiah, when he was commissioned, was was told, you go to this people and render their hearts hard. 
You go to this people and blind their eyes and deafen them so that they will not turn and be saved. But in John chapter 12, John says, God hardened the hearts. He blinded their eyes. He made them deaf. For this reason, they cannot. Not that they are not allowed to believe. They really, really want to, but they're not allowed to. But they do not have the ability to believe. Why? Because He, God, has blinded their eyes, and He, God, has hardened their hearts. Now, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah's, John is not, by the way, John is not misquoting Scripture. He's not getting it wrong. He's not loosely paraphrasing it. John is referring to this passage, but he is capturing a meaning here that suits his purpose in chapter 12. John is referring to this passage to show that it is God who is the active agent in doing the hardening and in doing the blinding. If John wanted to say that these Jews had hardened and blinded their own hearts and minds, John had a way that he could have said that, but he didn't say that. Instead, he captures the essence of Isaiah chapter 6 by pointing to God being the one. He is the active agent in the hardening. Isaiah describes the means of that hardening. The means of the hardening was the preaching and teaching ministry of Isaiah. The Word of God to the Jews which served to harden their hearts. John looks at that and says, even though the Word of God is the means by which their hearts would be hardened, It is God who Himself is the active agent in judging them by hardening their hearts. And so John attributes it directly to God. Now, admittedly, it is very difficult for us to understand how it is possible for God to harden hearts and to blind eyes. It seems as if God should be interested to send prophets not to harden men's hearts, but to soften them, right? Not to blind men's eyes, but to open them, right? Isn't that what we would hope? Isn't that what we would expect? How does this then comport with what we know to be true about God? Let me now put this into a theological context and explain to you what is going on with the hardening of hearts and the blinding of the eyes. This is an act, both in Isaiah chapter 6 and in John chapter 12, the hardening of the heart and the blinding of an eyes is an act of God's judgment upon those who had rejected the truth. Keep in mind the moral context in which Isaiah 6 falls. The people to whom Isaiah was sent were not a bunch of morally neutral, apathetic, pure-hearted, good folks just trying to do their best to please God. See, if you think that that is the type of person that God hardens, then you are going to see God as an, an ogre, a capricious deity who simply sees these soft-hearted folks that he wants to harden so that he can throw them into hell because they're just kindling for hell. That's not the people to whom Isaiah was sent. The people to whom Isaiah was sent were people who had the prophets, they had Moses, they had seen the signs, they had the covenant, they had been blessed, they had been protected. They had received more light, they had understood more light than you and I can conceivably imagine. These people had been the beneficiaries of every blessing poured out on them by God. And how did they respond? Chapter 1, they turned from me, they ignored me, they do not understand, they have forsaken me, they have abandoned me. Those are the people that God hardened. It was an act of judgment upon them for their rejection of the truth. These are men who had already rejected unbelievable light. And God says, all right, you like darkness? You get darkness. So it is an act of judgment. And is not God free to judge the wicked however He might choose? Is God not free to do that? He is free to do that. He is free to use hell. He is free to use temporal punishments. He is free to take away their drink, to take away their food, to destroy their crops, to send invading armies. He is free to blind their eyes and to harden their hearts if that would serve His purpose. 
God is sovereign and he is free to judge the wicked however God chooses to judge the wicked. He has the freedom to do that. And if you and I knew everything that God knows and we saw everything that God sees, we would never, never raise an objection against the righteousness of God in any judgment that he has ever given. If we knew what God knows and we saw what God sees, everything God has done, we would say, that is right, that is just, that is good. But the problem is that we don't know everything God knows, and we don't see everything God sees. And so we raise these objections. Well, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem righteous. When in fact it is ultimately righteous because God has done it. Is it unjust of God if somebody loves darkness and wants darkness for God to give them darkness? Is that injustice? That's not injustice. It's not injustice for God to say, look, you want a hard heart? I'll give you a hard heart. Here's your hard heart. It is unjust for God to say, you don't want to listen to my word? Then I will remove it from you. I will deafen you so that you do not have to hear my word. And if you like darkness, I'll give you darkness. I will blind your eyes so that you can't even see the truth. If that is the justice of God in judging those who have rejected the truth, it is not unrighteous for God to give darkness to those who love darkness. Because God has simply given to them that which they already love and they already enjoy and that which they want more of. John Calvin, in defending the justice of God from this very passage, he writes this, listen, Such blinding and hardening influence does not arise out of the nature of the word and must be ascribed exclusively to the depravity of man. End quote. By that he is saying it is not the word's fault for hardening their hearts. It's the heart's fault. The problem rests not with the judgment of God, the wisdom of God, or with the word of the message that is preached. The problem is not with any of those. The problem is with the human heart's inability and unwillingness to receive truth and to do what is appropriate with the truth. He goes on to say this, So ungodly men have no right to blame the word for making them worse after having heard it. The whole blame lies on themselves in altogether refusing it admission. And we need not wonder if that which ought to have led them to salvation became the cause of their destruction. It is right that the treachery and unbelief of men should be punished by meeting death where they might have received life, darkness where they might have had light, and in short, evils as numerous as the blessings of salvation which they might have obtained. This ought to be carefully observed, for nothing is more customary with men than to abuse the gifts of God, and then not only to maintain that they are innocent, but even to be proud of appearing in borrowed feathers. But they are doubly wicked when they not only do not apply to their proper use, but wickedly and corruptly profane those gifts which God has bestowed on them. End quote. Let me summarize that for you. By the way, the reference to borrowed feathers is a reference to Aesop's fables, and it refers to taking pride in something which you have taken from others, and you should be ashamed of it, but instead you take pride in it. So here's what Calvin is saying. God has given them all of these blessings, and they profaned them and abused them and then maintained their innocence, and then you're surprised that God removes those blessings, and that's all the hardening is. It is the removing of the grace of God from the heart so that the eyes are blinded, the heart is hardened, and the ears grow deaf to the truth. D.A. Carson in his commentary on John's Gospel says, God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings, but as a holy commandment, condemnation of the guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. End quote. Here's the key. The Jews of Jesus' day and of Isaiah's day chose this hardening. This is what they wanted. And God gave them what they wanted. Charles Spurgeon, this blindness was in part a punishment for their long rebellion. If men willfully shut their eyes, do you wonder that they become blind? 
If men will not hear, do you wonder that they grow deaf? He that perverts truth shall soon be incapable of knowing the true from the false. If you persist in wearing glasses that distort, everything will be distorted to you. Hear the just law, the judgment of the skies. He that hates the truth shall be the dupe of lies. End quote. Shut your eyes to the light, and guess what you get? Darkness. You get darkness. It is not unjust for God to judge those who hate the light by taking the light from them and instead giving them the very darkness that they want as an act of judgment to them for having rejected the truth. That is the hardening described in Isaiah chapter 6. That is the hardening described in John chapter 12. God does not take people who are morally pure and morally neutral and who really want to do honor God and do the best and do good and just a good old southern country boy, folk at heart, and then take them and say, you know what, even though this guy is morally pure and morally neutral, I think I'm going to harden his heart just so that I can cast him into hell. That would be a capricious God. That would be an unjust God. But that's not what God does, because that's not the type of people that were in Isaiah's day or in Jesus' day. God does take people who reject the truth and hate the light and judge them by giving them the darkness that they desire and the darkness that they crave. That is just. That is good. And God is free to do that. If He should so choose. God is free to do that. So when God hardens somebody's heart, it is an act of judgment. And it is an appropriate act of judgment. And by the way, this hardening does not come about because uh, by God infusing any wickedness into the heart of the sinner. This is another thing to remember. When it says in Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it doesn't mean that God created iniquity in Pharaoh and that God made Pharaoh do something that Pharaoh didn't want to do and that God manipulated Pharaoh into doing evil and that Pharaoh was just a tool and God was doing this to use him. That's not it, God did not create wickedness or infuse darkness into Pharaoh's heart. What God does in hardening the heart is to remove His grace so that the heart does what the heart has always wanted to do. Everything Pharaoh did, Pharaoh wanted to do. Pharaoh was not coerced to do anything. The Jews of Jesus' day were not coerced to do anything. God does not infuse evil into a heart or create evil in a heart. God withdraws light and grace and the heart, well, guess what happens to the heart? It becomes hardened. They become deaf. They become blind and they become unable to hear and to see and to turn because that is the justice of God. He hardens the heart not by creating iniquity in the heart but by allowing the heart to do what the heart wants to do. Listen, one of the worst judgments of God upon an individual is when God allows that individual to fully express their nature. That is the worst judgment of God. You don't want moral freedom. You don't want that. You ought to thank God every time He restrains sin in your neighbor or in you or in a ruler. The worst judgment of God upon a person is when God says, that's what you want. I will give you what you want. Likewise, the worst judgment of God upon a nation is when God turns that nation over to do what that nation in its darkened collective heart desires to do. That is the worst judgment of God upon a nation. Now, what do we make of all of this? We understand that it is a just judgment of God, that God is not unjust in doing this. We understand how God does it. Let's let's draw all of this to a close with a couple of of, uh, things of application. There is here some word of warning to unbelievers. So let me address for a moment unbelievers who would be here. 
Maybe, I don't know. Maybe some of you are not unbelievers. Some of you are. Um, You can sit under the preaching of the Word and under the truth of the Word week after week after week and hear it. You ought to be terrified by the reality that with every receiving of the truth and hearing of the truth, your heart is either softened or it is hardened. And the more you hear it and you turn away from the truth, and you hear it and you turn away from the truth, and you continue to do that, you will find that after a period of time, the justice of God will fall upon you and you will be unable to see and unable to hear and unable to receive the truth because your heart has been hardened to the point where you cannot as the justice of God, as a judgment upon you. So every gracious invitation that you reject serves to harden your heart. Every gracious every gracious word of Scripture which ought to soften your heart that you turn and reject and turn away from the truth only serves to condemn you further. And that ought to terrify you because you may wake up and realize that you have been blinded and you have been hardened and that God has given you exactly what it is that you have desired all along, which is a hard heart and a darkened heart. There is a word of encouragement here to believers in that on two accounts. Uh, first, you and I ought to be encouraged to be uh, in gratitude for what God has done. That for some reason, the mysterious providence and mystery of God's eternal counsels, he has determined not to allow Jim Osmond to get what Jim Osmond would have wanted. That God, by his grace, had not hardened me, even though I had rejected his word and rejected his truth, and I was just as wicked and depraved and un- unbelieving and rebellious as any of the worst of most unbelieving of Jews. But God didn't see fit to allow my heart to be hardened, but instead he pulled me out of that. And even though I had spent years, as the hymn says, in vanity and pride, knowing not my Lord was crucified, that God by his grace changed my heart, changed your heart, and pulled you out of that iniquity and delivered you from darkness. That's ought to inspire in us tremendous gratitude to God for all that he has done. We ought to be thankful. You and I are not like these Jews. They did not harden our hearts and blind our eyes so that we could not, even though that was what we wanted in our unbelief. A second thing that we ought to be very grateful for in this and and inspired to is, is to be faithful in what God has called us to do. Listen, if God called a great man like Isaiah to preach to people just for the sake of giving them what they wanted, which was hardened hearts and blind eyes and deaf ears, you and I should not be surprised if God might determine to use our ministries and our proclamation of the truth in the same way that he used Elijah's ministry or Isaiah's ministry and Isaiah's proclamation of the truth, namely to harden people's hearts. I think that you, we are living in a day that is very similar to Isaiah's day in, in many ways, not only culturally and morally, spiritually, ethically, all of that. We're living in a time that's very similar to Isaiah's. And I believe that barring a work of God's spirit, and barring a work of God's grace, that our ministry and our stand for the truth is going to be more like Isaiah's than Jonah's. I wish I could go into a, a city and just preach a one-sentence sermon, repent or perish, and walk out and have the whole city converted. But that's not what God is likely appointed for us. The, the order of our day is not going to be widespread revival, likely. It's going to be widespread rejection. But we have to know that even in the midst of that, that God is doing something in and through His Word, it always accomplishes what He has determined to accomplish with it. It will either harden men's hearts or it will soften men's hearts. But we ought not be surprised if we are met with the same resistance, the same rejection as Isaiah was. Don't expect that going to people with the truth is going to result in a Jonah-like conversion of an entire city. We ought to expect that it is going to result in a hardening like the people of Isaiah's day where the truth that is given to them only serves to confirm them in their unbelief and bring about the judgment of God upon them. And yet, in the midst of all of that, you and I are called to be faithful. And we ought not to never lose heart, never lose heart, at speaking the truth, sharing it in love, and proclaiming and preaching the truth, knowing that God will use that to bring about what He desires to accomplish. Whether it is 
giving them mercy or hardening their hearts through the proclamation of the truth. I close with a quotation from Charles Spurgeon because no preacher can do anything better than to quote Spurgeon at the end of a sermon. Charles Spurgeon, he said this, Are we to see again unbelief and luxurious sin walking hand in hand? If so, there be some of us who mean to take up our sorrowful parable and speak as plainly as we can for truth and holiness, whether we offend or please men. Be it ours still to thunder out the law of God and proclaim the with trumpet clearness the gospel of Jesus, not baiting one jot of firm belief in the revelation of God, nor winking at sin, nor toning down truth, even though we fear that the only result will be to make this people's hearts gross and their ears heavy and their eyes blind. That's going to be the order of our day. Be prepared to watch people's hearts be hardened and their eyes blinded by the truth. It's the day in which we live, and that is a just judgment of God upon those who have rejected so much light. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are very grateful to You. Our hearts are filled with gratitude that You did not see fit to harden our hearts and to blind our eyes to the Gospel truth. Thank You that You have delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of Your dear Son. We are grateful for our salvation. We know that we do not owe it to our own doing, our own choice, our own desires, our own ability, but a sovereign work of Your Spirit whereby You gave us a new heart and a new nature and inclined our hearts to the truth and gave us the love for the truth. All of these things are are foreign and alien to us as fallen individuals. We thank You that You have done it for Your own glory and, and by Your grace. And so we are grateful. We pray that You would keep us faithful to proclaim the truth to our lost friends, our lost neighbors, family members who so desperately need to know the truth. And we pray that You would be pleased to pluck men and women from the fires of eternity. That You would be pleased to turn them from their sins and bring them to repentance and faith through the truth that we share we know that in the midst of this, it may be your desire to judge men and women by hardening their hearts. And we simply leave that up to our sovereign God, who always does what is right and good. We would never question you if we knew what you know, saw what you see. And so we thank you that we can trust that the judge of all the earth always does what is right and holy and true. We pray that you would give us confidence in your righteous judgments and a love for your truth. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.